Hi, and welcome to episode number 12 of What I'd Wish I'd Known, the Google Partners bi-weekly podcast on how to be strategically tactical with me, your host, Alex Langshire. What I'd Wish I'd Known is where I get to ask an industry veteran to share their top five lessons learned on a specific aspect of growing an agency, digital marketing, or any of the Google products. I like to call it strategically tactical because my goal is to get our guests to think hard about some of the most important practical things that they did that produced significant change in value for them in their career or at their organization. Their insight is your chance to save years of trial and error by learning from those who are at the top of their game. Today, we're going to be talking about staffing. And we're going to be talking about staffing with Google. And Google has a really well-deserved reputation for hiring and keeping exceptional talent. This reputation is not by accident, but the result of a deliberate and thorough process to research, design, and develop an approach that maximizes the chance of making a good hire and of identifying those that might not be the best fit. So what are the top five secrets to hiring that Google has learned? That's what we're going to find out on today's podcast with our guest, Lisa Stern Haynes, who is a staffing lead at Google with years of experience and practical knowledge on how Google does staffing. Welcome, Lisa, to the Google Podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. It's great that you can make the time, and and thank you so much. I know this is going to be a great subject, a lot of interest in it. Um, Before we begin, Lisa, can you maybe just share us a little bit about yourself, maybe something unusual about yourself? Absolutely. So I joined Google back in 2006, and I'd say that I'm kind of an unusual employee and that I have not changed teams in over a decade. That's pretty atypical at Google (laughs) since many people join Google in one capacity and then throughout the years change teams many times. And oftentimes what they're doing is changing teams within the function that they joined. And what I mean by that is they might hop from one sales team to another But it's also really common for Googlers to switch to a totally different part of the company. So, for example, transferring from the sales team to our people operations team. You know, that is definitely unusual. We've done so much work with Google over the years. First of all, you know, I measure uh, time at Google in dog years. So 2006 (laughs) is a really long time. Uh, So that's amazing. And also, uh, like you say, one of the things I find so fascinating about the culture at Google and the way that they staff and manage their uh, talent pool is the ability to change jobs. So that's that's unique. Um, can you tell us why you decide to take this type of track? Absolutely. So I just really enjoy what I'm doing. And it's been really tempting to try out other teams over the years. And I've done 20% projects and 50% projects uh, throughout my time here. But it's very hard to think about something I would like better than bringing amazing talent to the best place on earth to work. So when I originally joined the staffing team, I was a recruiting coordinator. And back in that job, I handled a lot of the interviewing logistics for candidates and for interviewers. And I've stayed within staffing throughout my time here. So today, I'm a staffing lead where I oversee the overall hiring strategy for both our national ad agency sales team, so I'm sure that's near and dear to your heart, Mm -hmm. and also our global hardware partnerships team. Fantastic. So what you're basically saying is that you know staffing at Google. I'd like to think at this point I know a little something about staffing at well, Google. <laughs> that's great because that's what we're going to dive into. And, and you know, uh, I think Google has this fantastic reputation, as I said at the intro, uh, when it comes to staffing. And a lot of people would love to know kind of what that secret sauce is. So, you you know, we've talked about this. You know the theme of our podcast. I got to say that I'm I'm all ears and I know our listeners are as well. Can you share with us 
what are the top five lessons that you've learned? And I think by extension, Google, but I'd love your spin on those too, with respect to finding great talent that you think that any organization today, large agency, medium-sized agency, or small agency would need to know or like to know. Yes, let's do it. So let's start with point number one. It's really important to be consistent and open-minded when you're reviewing resumes. And what I mean by that is when you're reviewing candidates' qualifications on their resumes, it can be so tempting to compare them to one another instead of to a predetermined standard. So for each role, what we do at Google is that we have a clear list of minimum qualifications that we've outlined way before we even begin to receive any resumes, and then we review each of those candidates against that list. And one of the reasons it's so important to compare candidates to a standard is because it reduces the potential for all of our unconscious biases to influence us. And by having that predetermined bar that we're measuring against, it makes it much easier for us to be objective. You know, if I can jump in here, Lisa, I think that this idea of consistency is absolutely key. So in an organization like Google, I'm sure you get so many resumes that some predetermined standard is quite simply just a necessity to keep your head above water with all these incoming flood of resumes, I assume. But in smaller agencies, you tend to get far fewer resumes. And most often, you actually have to go hunting for those candidates. So... You know, I agree with you that a standard is ideal, but I, I speak, you know, and I'm guilty, you know, I'll put my hand up. Um, I, sometimes you, you need somebody, you've gotten a contract, you need to move forward and you're looking at things. It's a little bit hard to maintain that standard. So if you had to compromise on something, you know, what would that be? And, and what conversely would be the standards that you would recommend that nobody compromise on? Great question. So at Google, we are very transparent about what the four attributes are that where you consider very important when we make hiring decisions. Mm-hmm. And they are published on our website and explained uh, in great detail. So just to, to review what they are, we have general cognitive ability, leadership, Googliness, and role-related knowledge. Uh, and I, I'll I, talk about I, want, I really want to hear you talk about the Googliness thing, but will you yeah, I'd love to hear you explain <laughs> these. I sure will. So um, if you think about those four different attributes, general cognitive ability is really just problem-solving ability. Mm -hmm. So how do you work through a problem that you haven't encountered before? Um, Leadership is something that we look for both in individual contributors and in people managers. And what that means is just being able to influence others and inspire followership for your ideas. Um, Googliness is definitely the one that makes people smile. And some people here call it culture fit. And what that means is how someone might fit into a culture that's like ours, that really values collaboration and working well in teams and navigating ambiguous situations, and then having like a bias towards taking action to a problem and appreciating diversity. So all those things that we think about with our culture and seeing how someone would do in that culture. Um, The role-related knowledge piece is really just the skills or experience that's necessary to perform the role. You know, I think it's fascinating if I, if just hearing you say that, is that, you know, one often thinks of the people at Google as being really strong subject matter expertise. And what you said, that's just one of the four traits that you're hiring against. Exactly. And general cognitive ability is probably the most important, while role-related knowledge, maybe surprisingly, is the least important. And the idea behind that is, if you're a smart problem solver and you're good at learning, you can figure out pretty much anything that's going to be role-related knowledge on the job. And as I mentioned before, there's a lot of musical chairs with regard to people's jobs at Google. So we want to hire smart generalists who can grow and move around the company over time. Yeah, fascinating. Um, So... You know, what would be some of the things that you look for specifically in an initial screen on a resume? 
So in addition to comparing candidates to that predetermined standard, there are a couple of things that we look for in our initial resume screen. The first, and I say this as a daughter of an editor, is resume quality. <laughs> um, you want you would be surprised how often I see mistakes on resumes. And you're Probably the about one I see grammar mistakes, punctuation mistakes. I mean, are you talking Everything. about level or just formatting mistakes or I've all seen it all. <laughs> all of the above. Okay. Yeah, I think the most common one I see is the past tense of the word lead, where it's supposed to read lead, L-E-D, and people still spell it lead. Mm. That one drives me nuts. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, resume quality, it's really important to make sure that they're completely buttoned up when you submit them. Um, we'll even get ones where, where there'll be an objective and say, you know, I'd really like to land a job at, and it'll name a different company. So it's great that people are customizing their resumes, but you always want to make sure that you have proofread it a million times before you're submitting it anywhere and get someone else to proofread it too who has never looked at it before. Oh, well, okay. But but for you, what, <laughs> let's take it from the perspective of an agency, if you don't mind my drilling yep. a little bit here. So are, are you saying that you've noticed that if a resume comes in and, and there are things like that, that just that the kind of the, the tactical, you know, grammar, punctuation and, and, and attention to detail, if that's lacking, uh, that has an impact on whether or not you would screen them in or out? Exactly, because that is something that the candidate's using to represent themselves. And so if there's going to be mistakes on that and there's you know, you're noticing sloppiness on there, that really is a great indicator of how they perform a job. So if they're spelling the names of their employers wrong, if they're using you know incorrect spelling or grammar or incorrect formatting, that is just a reflection on how they would be as an employee at the company. And, and we expect, you know, the resume is something that you have to absolutely nail if you want to interview. All right. So clearly what you're saying is that is that is that is a, a simple question discriminate uh, that you would use and, and Google applies that consistently. Exactly. Right. And then beyond that, I think oftentimes people fall into the trap of making their resumes read like job descriptions. And what's most helpful to a recruiter is to be able to see a quantifiable, measurable impact that a candidate has had in whatever job they're coming from, wherever they have been in their career. So in other words, is a candidate going to be able to articulate on their resume what they personally accomplished or brought to the table in their role, either relative to the goals that were set for them or relative to their peers. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, look, I, I, I could go on that one for a long time, but, <laughs> but I'm interested in hearing what your second point would be. Let's move to that. Cool. So just key takeaway of that first point, it's really important to determine the minimum qualifications for a role before you receive any of the applications that are going to roll in and be really consistent when you're reviewing those resumes so you can compare them to the minimum qualifications. Uh, Thanks. I really appreciate you underlining that with the key takeaway. That was was good. Let's go to point two. All right. It might sound a little bit harsh the way I'm going to phrase this, but you're probably not as good at interviewing as you think you are. (laughs) (laughs) Guilty. <laughs> and what I mean by that is most people think that they're far better interviewers than they actually are, and there are a lot of research studies that back this up. And that's why at Google, we typically use structured interviewing. And that just means that we use the same interview methods to assess candidates who are applying for the same job. Okay, yeah. So we determine well ahead of time what questions we're going to ask all of the different candidates, and we also come up with a grading rubric ahead of time too. So way before we ask any questions, we can anticipate what we think a good versus a mediocre versus a poor answer is going to look like. And yeah, that takes a little bit of time and preparation, yeah. but it makes assessing candidates so much easier and so much more consistent. Well, so this is interesting because you just mentioned that there's research that backs up uh, the benefits of this approach. So um, what is that research or can you share a little bit more about that research and what it might reveal? 
So the research has shown externally to Google that structured interviews are more predictive of a candidate's future performance on the job compared to unstructured interviews. And then internally at Google, we have a bunch of internal studies that we do, and we found in our own research that structured interview scores are actually highly predictive indicators of future performance scores of our employees. Isn't that interesting? Oh, that's pretty fascinating. So I got to ask, so how does it work? What, what does a structured interview look like uh, at Google? And, and yeah, just what does that look like? Yep. So before we develop our interview questions, we have to think about a couple of things first. So what attributes are we going to be seeking for people who join the company in general and then for that role specifically? And once you figure those two things out, it's much easier to develop appropriate questions to test for those attributes. So we already talked about what Google's four main attributes are. Yep. So that general cognitive ability, leadership, Googliness, and role-related knowledge. Yep. But then once you can kind of drill into what specific role-related knowledge ties back to those minimum qualifications, then you're going to understand what's the bare minimum that a candidate needs to be able to do this role and then what can they learn on the job. Uh, can I ask a little, can I, again, drilling in a little bit deeper on this, because I, I want to be able to have something our, our listeners can kind of grasp on this. So maybe can you share any of the types of questions that you'd ask under each of these attributes? Uh, is What would be the Google secret question sauce, as it were? <laughs> yep. Um, so as part of our structured interviewing approach, we develop those interview questions well before we ask any yep. of them. And as for the questions that we use, we've learned a lot along the way. So it didn't always start out like this. It's definitely been a launch and iterate process over time. And we learned our lesson the hard way after years and years of asking brain teaser questions like, how many golf balls can you fit in a school bus? <laughs> oh, you know something? Uh, years ago, I live in Boston. Years ago, there was an ad above the subway in Cambridge in Harvard Square. And the ad was essentially this um, uh, equation, right? This derivative equation. <laughs> and you had to solve it. And if you solved it, uh, you'd enter uh, at a, at a, on, I think, on the Google website. And then that would say, congratulations, you've got the smarts to apply for a job here. And it, it made the news. It was a big, big to-do here in Boston. I remember that they were trying to look for curious engineers right, <laughs> and they exactly. figured anyone who could solve that problem, they would then be bought, uh, brought to a second screen and then they would have to solve another problem. And if they could solve both of those questions, they were automatically signed up for interviews. <laughs> okay. So I, t I took you off your game. Let's hear. But at least that was a little bit more role related because we were looking for coding skills. Yeah. The brain teasers that we used to ask to candidates had literally nothing to do with the job at all. So one of my favorite questions that I would hear would be, what would you do if you had an elephant? <laughs> <laughs> so great cocktail party conversation, but unsurprisingly, those types of questions don't turn out to be terribly predictive of future performance on the job, right. unless that might be part of the job. But to my knowledge, we don't have any roles that involve filling school buses with golf balls or holding elephants. Uh, so. Although it is Google, so that could be a possibility, right? I would, so true. Yeah. So, so what would be one of the hard questions? Example. So most of our questions fall under two categories, where we have behavioral and hypothetical questions. And we can use both styles of questions to get at all of those four different attributes that we talked about earlier. So the behavioral questions focus much more on your past experience, and they'll start something like, tell me about a time. And the premise of those types of questions is that a candidate's past experience is going to be a great indicator of their potential future work performance. Then the hypothetical questions are a little bit different, and they're a little bit harder to prepare for, if I'm being honest. They're more situational in nature, and so you can't rely on your past work experience to answer those. And they might start something like, imagine you encounter X situation. How would you go about why? 
And in those types of questions, candidates have to be able to think on their feet and walk through their thought processes regarding how they'd go about solving that problem. So the candidates are not necessarily trying to drive towards a correct answer that the interviewers are looking for, but the interviewers are really curious to see how they think. Fascinating. So what would be the key takeaway for, uh, for your second point then? Yep. So in addition to those behavioral and hypothetical questions, we use rubrics so we can grade those answers in a really consistent way. And so we want to understand way before we ask the question, what's considered a good or a mediocre or a poor answer. So I would say, Wrapping all that up, we want to figure out which attributes are important for the company in general and for a role specifically, come up with those interview questions ahead of time, ask the same interview questions to all of the candidates who are interviewing for that very same role, and then know ahead of time which types of answers are going to impress you and which ones won't. Awesome. Okay. Help us out. What's your third point? All right. Point number three, make hiring decisions by consensus. What I mean by that is that research tells us that teams that have divergent opinions can make better, less biased decisions, and that also applies to the way that we make hiring decisions too. So one thing that you might be surprised to learn is that at Google, a hiring manager can say no to any candidate, but if they find someone that they want to hire, they alone cannot give the final yes to extend that offer. Did you know that? I did not know that. So they have veto (laughs) rights? They have veto rights, but they can't alone make the hire hire this person decision. So they actually have to pass that candidate along to a hiring committee for review. And I'm sure you can imagine, Alex, when managers come to Google for the first time and hear this, especially after years and years of having it you know, in a very different way at their yeah, previous yeah. companies, they're shocked. But if you think about it, how many times have you seen a manager rush to settle for a candidate because of time pressure or hire someone due to a pre-existing relationship or maybe is a favor to someone like a client or a friend? And a bad hire can have a really long-lasting negative effect Uh, on a team or a company's culture. So it's way better to take the time to go through a very robust hiring committee on the front end and then identify the best possible candidate the first time around. You know, so uh, I had so many ways to go with this one too. But here, I'll just share something. Um, Given my role, I don't do a lot of hiring anymore, but what I do a lot of is negotiating and signing deals. And the way you describe this really makes me think of the concept of deal envy, which is, you know, you just put so much effort into something and you want it to work out so badly that you lose perspective. And so Mm -hmm. the way you speak about this reminds me kind of in the way of deal envy. And how do I work to always pressure test any deal by using a group of my colleagues and senior managers to ensure that the person that's leading the deal hasn't fallen victim to this. So so I know what that looks like, and I, I pass that around, and it's a little bit of a formal review, but how do your hiring committees work? What do they look like? And, and, and then the other thing is, you know, some of the smaller agencies, a committee is, was really a committee of one, but <laughs> how do you balance out the need to be agile and act quickly? Because anytime I hear the word committee... <laughs> You know, I just think that's that's bureaucratic and slow. So how does how does Google maintain that agility? That's a fair point. And to be completely honest, using a hiring committee does slow the process down. But that's kind of by design. So hiring someone such a big deal, you really don't want to rush it. And the hiring committees at Google are typically made up of leaders in the specific organization that's doing the hiring. And it does not include the individual hiring managers, which, again, might be kind of surprising. Oh, really? Okay, so so the the person that's making the request is not on that committee. The hiring managers have had a chance to interview the candidate and fill out feedback on that candidate, but then that is something that's getting passed to the independent hiring committees who are removed from the urgency that the hiring manager is feeling. Ah, they get none of that pressure. Okay. All right. Yeah. They're just looking at the candidates and the merits of the candidate. 
Exactly. So they have a good understanding of the company and the direction that the company is going in, and they'll have some context on the role. And so they're like a layer of objectivity, and they're looking to see, does this person you know, match the qualifications for this immediate role at hand? But also, are they going to be a good fit for the organization as a whole for the longer term? And if you think about how quickly Google changes, if we just hire someone to do one specific job, but then our company needs change, we need to be you know, we need to rest assured that that person's going to find something else to do at Google. And again, that goes back to the idea of hiring smart generalists. Yeah, this general cognitive ability. Uh, so, so the hiring committee is it, it, it's it's a it, it's a kind of a standing committee, right? The people that are part of it are are part of it for a while, so they develop a certain degree of expertise and facility with it. So you're not just, it's not just conscious. So I'm thinking again of a smaller agency. Yep. You could have two or three people, and those people are always a second-round hiring committee. They're looking at the candidate from the resume, and they also they interview the candidate as well, right? The hiring committees don't interview the candidate. That's a great point. Yep. So the hiring committees are like a layer of objectivity. So they have not met that candidate in person. They're reviewing the interview feedback. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. And I'll explain more about what they're actually reading. Oh, this is getting interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the committees are reviewing what we sometimes refer to internally as a hiring packet. And that includes things like the detailed interview feedback, the recruiter's notes from the initial conversation uh, that they have with the candidate, internal references if the person knows other people that work at Google, external references if the person has submitted professional references, um, and all sorts of other information. So those hiring committees, they're made up of rotating members who will probably serve on the committee for maybe three or six months, and then they'll roll off. So it's really a shared responsibility among other people at the company to be that second layer of objectivity when we're looking to hire people within their type of organization. Really interesting. Uh, so so you know, if I just say that this is clearly something that uh, as you scale your agency, it's something to consider and, and start having that... Uh, um, that approach. Yep. Key takeaway from this point is set up an independent hiring committee to review all hiring decisions before you extend offers. Yeah. And, and those hiring committees are working in the blind, or as it were, like uh, they're just working off the data as opposed to meeting the individual. And I, I think that, prob- that probably also helps with eliminating some of the unconscious bias that might might creep up otherwise. You nailed it. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. What would be your fourth point? So this one's kind of a two-parter. So first part, make hiring a part of everybody's job. Second part, invest the time to train everyone on how you want them to hire. So just to dig a little deeper into that first part, getting your employees truly invested in the hiring process is really important for the employees themselves and for the candidates. For the employees, it gives us a great sense of ownership over the team and the future of the whole company because we want to make sure everyone's invested in bringing in the best and the brightest people. For the candidates, it has such a big impact on their experience. So research that we see at Google shows that the interviewers themselves have the biggest impact on a candidate's experience and can be even more important than the type of role a candidate's interviewing for or the benefits and salary package we're offering or even their interactions with the recruiter. Mm. So the second part of that, is that we can't assume that people are going to walk into Google on day one and understand exactly what we want them to do and how we want them to interview according to those different guidelines that we've been going over. So it's absolutely critical that we take the time to train all of our employees on how we want them to interview. You know, I just love this idea uh, that the the concept that uh, at the company, I say, uh, Colonel Path, that it's everybody's job to do sales and that's, you know, Mm -hmm. either doing it through delivery, but everybody has a role in that. And I think I hear you say that it's everybody's job to ensure that we've got the best talent that we're fielding. So I love this idea. But but we operate in resource-constrained environments. So so how how does Google do this, right? So just 
how does interviewer training work at Google? I mean, is the goal to make all staff interviewers? And if so, what would be the hardest part of trying to achieve this? Because I could see that would be a, a pretty big, um, it's pretty ambitious. You're right. And the hardest thing to do is get people to step away from their desk for an hour or more to take a training. You're totally right about that. Everybody is resource constrained and time constrained here. But our goal is for all employees to go through interview training prior to conducting any interviews. In addition to going through that interview training, many new interviewers shadow experienced interviewers. And then we also use a reverse shadowing technique sometimes where the experienced interviewer gets to shadow the new interviewer and then provide feedback afterwards. That makes a lot of sense. Um, is there anything else that you do? I mean, so are they are they are they expected to pass a test, an interviewer test, or? There's not a formal test, but um, one of the key things that we are teaching in that training is to write really clear feedback because the feedback that the interviewers are going to be writing is exactly what the hiring committee is going to be reviewing. So the hiring committee is looking at, as we said before, the resume, the interview feedback, references, and the notes from the recruiter. But the thing that they make a beeline for when they're opening up those hiring packets is the interview feedback. Um, And that's what they're really going to be relying on when they're making that hiring decision. And so if you put on your hiring committee member hat for a second, they're going to be reading this feedback and they're not going to be able to do much with vague feedback like seems smart. So what they really are looking for is to be a fly on the wall in those conversations. And they want to be able to understand what questions were asked and what was a synopsis of what the candidate actually responded. And did the interviewer evaluate that in such a way that they agree with that interviewer or maybe they didn't agree with that interviewer and think they didn't probe deeply enough. So they want to understand why does that interviewer think that the candidate either hit or missed the mark. So they really want to be able to get a sense of how that interview went. So this is really interesting because what you're saying is that the interviewer has to be able to take really good notes and express themselves in a cogent way so that others can understand uh, you know, how the, how the candidate fared. Is there ever a time when, you know, a hiring committee may look at the notes from an interviewer and kind of give some feedback about what they're reading and it might not be up to snuff? Or is there a feedback loop there? Yes, there is. And and that's something that we're actually investing more time into as we go forward and kind of launching and iterating our hiring process. Everything at Google is always being launched and iterated. Um, and one of the things that we're seeing is that as we continue to have people move around the company and move not even just within Google, but from Google to the other bets that we have that are within Alphabet, yep. we're seeing a big need to, to really focus on general cognitive ability even more than we have in the past. So oftentimes when the hiring committees will ask for more information, they'll say, great questions on leadership, great questions on Googliness, the role-related knowledge is clearly there. Can we have one, one more interview for general cognitive ability? Just because we want to make sure that that person's able to think through problems they haven't encountered in the past. So it's rare that they're that, you know, prescriptive about what they want to see, but oftentimes they will ask for follow-up information or say, you know, this person seems like they were on the fence with this candidate's coding skills. Can we get this person to, you know, write a statement of support to make sure we're, they're comfortable with moving forward with that person? Fantastic. So what would your key takeaway be here? Key takeaway would be your hiring process is going to rely on your employees, so make sure they're really invested in helping you hire great people. So it's really important not just to make sure that they're invested, but also to train them on how exactly you want them to prepare for interviews and conduct interviews and communicate the feedback that they're going to get from those interviews. And just one little thing I'll add on the end is that it's also really important to make sure that interviews are aware that they're representing your company. So tips that you're going to share during the interview training, such as 
you know, review a candidate's resume before you meet them, which sounds so obvious, but a lot of people will do it on the way to the meeting and just right. kind of scan it really yep. quickly or show up on time and make eye contact and, you know, make the candidate feel comfortable before you j- jump right into the questions and leave some time at the end so the candidate can ask questions about the job and the culture. All that stuff seems really obvious, but it always helps to remind people too. Well, I, I'm a big fan of saying that the first contact that an employee is going to have with a company after the kind of the image of what they might have in their head is going to be at the interview or the recruiting process. So they are, they are for all intents and purposes, represent the company, and the way they engage is super, super important. So, And that's uh, a perfect segue to our last point. <laughs> yeah, which is what? Focus on creating a positive candidate experience. And I cannot stress that enough. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so easy to forget that the hiring process is a two-way street, especially when you work at a company like Google where so many people want to work here and we get so many applications. But the candidate's not just trying to convince us that they can do the job. We have to be selling and wooing the candidate as well. And I'm sure this is the same on the tech and the media side of the industries. There's a lot of competition. So if we find a great candidate, it's pretty reasonable to assume that other organizations are also going to want to hire that person. So we have to make sure that we are providing a great candidate experience uh, throughout. But the good news is that every touch point that we have with the candidate throughout their hiring process, from the very first email where you're saying, hey, we've received your application, we're so excited to hear from you, to the end where you're extending that offer over the phone or in person, all of those different touch points are opportunities where you can create an awesome experience for the candidate. You know, oh my gosh, Lisa, I cannot, I cannot, like violent, violent agreement with you on this, right? <laughs> because from my perspective, the recruiter is the company, right? How responsive they are, what their follow through is like, how they work with you, uh, all of that is a not so subtle reflection of the company you are and that you're about to work for, right? For the candidates might be working for. Mm-hmm. So what are, what are kind of some small tips? Again, think about a majority of our, our, our listeners are from smaller agencies. So what are some of the small things that you found that have been really effective that you think that our listeners might want to consider doing or that you would really recommend that, you, you know, the, what are the small things that produce a really big bang here for you? So I think actually surprisingly, it's simple things like making sure a candidate knows what to expect and helping a candidate prepare for an interview by taking a few minutes to chat with them first. All of those things just make better candidate experience. And the research shows us too that doing so helps them perceive the process as being more fair. Um, One other point I should make is that it's really important to break out of the email bubble and use live communications, whether that's in person or over video conference or over the phone. And one thing that we really uh, stress on the staffing team is that we try to use live interactions as often as possible because we want to humanize the interview experience for our candidates and help them feel like they have an advocate at Google who's rooting for them and cheering them on and giving them what they need to do uh, to be successful in the process and really seeing them as a person and not just, you know, robotic account manager candidate number 457. (laughs) I just want to push a little bit here. So you're saying that the uh, person who's in charge of that staffing process uh, is almost like the manager of that candidate as they go into the hiring process? Yes, they're like an ally. And so we... Yep. So we want all the candidates to see us as their best resource and their biggest advocate throughout the entire hiring process. And we want them to feel like we're cheering on them to get the job. That's great. Uh, Lisa, and what would the takeaway therefore be on this? 
So to sum up that last key takeaway, I would say candidates are making decisions about where they want to work based on their interview experience. And in addition to that, they're going to be talking about their interview experience to other potential candidates, and they may, may even re-interview for the company later down the road if they didn't get the, the position the first time around. And we've seen a lot of people get hired under those circumstances. So making sure that you treat all candidates well really increases the chances that they're going to want to work for your company, and also it benefits your brand too. Lisa, that was capital A awesome. You've really given us fantastic insight into how Google does staffing with some wonderfully practical tips that I think our listeners will put directly to use. And you've put that within a really nice strategic framework and given us some clear takeaways. So all in all, just, you know, just huge thanks to you uh, for being on the podcast today. Absolutely. That was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me. Great. And, you know, just as an idea, I'd love to have either you or maybe perhaps one of your other colleagues uh, at Google to come back and discuss how does Google uh, do training of managers, especially first-time managers? That's a, that's a really interesting area to explore. Would, would that be possible? That is a subject that we are very passionate about, and I'm sure we can dig someone up to talk about that. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Well, listen, thank you, Lisa, again. And thank you to our listeners. We appreciate they took the time to listen to today's podcast. And as always, we love getting your feedback. You can reach out to us on the events page or directly to me via LinkedIn or Twitter. Listen to us online, download us on Google Play, iTunes, or Stitcher. And please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.